Hi, and welcome to the Itanium Solutions Alliance Innovation Contest podcast series. I'm your host, Brad Redderson of Stranova.com, and throughout this series, we'll be talking with winners of the contest who demonstrated the most innovative uses of Itanium-based computing in each of three areas, humanitarian impact, enterprise business applications, and entrepreneurial innovation. The winners were selected from many submissions representing diverse applications of mission-critical and high-performance computing from around the world. In this podcast, we'll be looking at how the choice of a powerful supercomputer architecture utilizing Itanium II made it possible for Dr. Carlos Simmerling and the team at Stony Brook University in New York to create state-of-the-art biomedical models of the HIV virus, paving the way for potentially life-saving treatments for millions and enabling the team to win this year's Humanitarian Impact Innovation Award. Stony Brook University was dealing with one of the toughest biomedical computer modeling problems there is, the complex behavior of the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, as it transforms over time. The goal was to catch HIV's protease, also known as HIV-PR, a viral protein that plays an active role in the spread of AIDS, in the act of opening its two protective structural flaps. Why was this important? Because when the flaps open, special protease inhibitor drugs can enter in to block the HIV-PR function and keep the virus from spreading. And why was it so difficult to model? Because scientists estimate that the structure remains open for less than a microsecond, but that's still a nine orders of magnitude longer modeling cycle than previous computer models had ever been able to do because of the raw computer power needed. Thanks to the combination of Stony Brook University's biomedical simulation software and the extensive scientific computational capabilities and raw power of Intel's Itanium II, it is now possible to produce these critically needed long simulations with unprecedented resolution and reducing computational time from months to literally only weeks. And in the search for groundbreaking treatments to stop the spread of HIV and AIDS, Time is absolutely of the essence. To tell us about these breakthroughs, we are pleased to have Dr. Carlos Simmerling, Associate Professor at Stony Brook Center for Structural Biology, available for us today. Well, Carlos, thanks for joining us today. It's really exciting to be here and get to talk to you about our work. Well, you and your team are the winner of the Itanium Solutions Alliance's first ever innovation contest in the Humanitarian Impact Innovation category. You're using this to model the dynamic behavior of HIV and AIDS, how potential life-saving drugs might interact with the virus, and how the virus itself evolves and transforms over time. I know it's a complex issue, but could you tell our listeners a bit about the biological modeling problem you've been working on and the computational challenge that you and your team were facing when you began your current project? Sure. Well, it's probably useful to tell a little about proteins first in order to understand exactly what it is we're doing in the specific case of HIV. So proteins are biomolecules that are long floppy chains that are made from DNA. And so different proteins have different lengths and they're kind of like beads where you have different beads on the chain. And the length of the chain and the kinds of beads that are on it give it different function. We have proteins in our body that carry blood to our cells, that give structure to our cells that perform all the chemistry that make your hair. So proteins are really all the structure of life. So one of the really important things in structural biology, which is the kind of research that I do, is to really understand how these proteins do their job. What do they look like? 
how do they act, and if you have a problem in the DNA and there's a mutation in the protein, what does that change about its behavior? Why does that end up giving you a disease? Or in the case of HIV, if it changes its proteins, why does it mean that our drugs don't work anymore, and how can we overcome that? So one of the best ways to know what these proteins look like is to figure out their three-dimensional structures, where the atoms are organized in space. Imagine taking this chain and wrapping it up into a ball or something like that. Every different kind of protein is going to look a little bit different. All of the proteins of a particular sequence will have more or less the same shape. And so what you want to know is for a particular protein, what does it look like? And can that tell us something about its function? So experiments can tell us this, and X-ray crystallography is one way that they do this. So they take the proteins, they get them to crystallize, and they take them out, and they diffract X-rays off of them, and they can figure out where all the atoms are in space. And then that gives us a picture of, on average, what the proteins look like. And this is really great, but the problem is it's kind of like if you thought about cars. If I told you, you know, I really want to know what this car looks like, and you said, I'm going to take an average over a whole day, and I'm going to look at all the cars in the world, the best thing to do in terms of an analogy with crystallography is to look at a parking lot. There's a bunch of cars in the parking lot. They're all lined up the same way. None of them are moving, and none of them are doing anything. And so it tells you what a car looks like, but it really doesn't tell you anything about its function. It doesn't tell you about how it moves. And if you want to know what the structure looks like, then that's a good thing to do. So if I said, now you've got these cars. You see what they look like in the parking lot. Tell me the best way to keep drivers from driving their cars. You want to interfere with this function because this molecule is going to cause disease. So I want to interfere with the behavior of this car. The best thing you might do is to look at the car and say, ah, well, you know, the driver sits here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make something that exactly fills up this space for the driver's seat. And so when the driver goes to get in the car, he won't fit anymore. And that's what most drugs do. They're a molecule that we design or we come by fortuitously or something like that that fits into the driver's seat of the protein and blocks it. And so nothing else can get in there. And in the meantime, the protein is deactivated. So that works really well. And you can design something that fits perfectly. But what happens with next year's model? The driver's seat's a little bit different shape. Maybe the steering wheel is a different place, and so this thing that you've designed to fit perfectly doesn't work anymore. And that's what happens with drug resistance, where there's something small that changes about the protein. In the case of HIV, maybe it changes its sequence because it mutates a lot, and your drug doesn't fit anymore. So this is sort of one of the drawbacks with crystallography, is we only get this static picture, and we also don't really know if what we're going after in terms of blocking it is really the best thing to do. If you wanted, for example, with cars, if you want to block a car, you know, somebody from using their car, and you want it to work on lots of different kinds of cars, then obviously filling up the seat of a VW Beetle isn't going to help you when you're trying to block the action of a Hummer because the thing that you've designed to block it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't fit. So if you looked at cars and could say over the course of a day, I'm watching a single car and I'm going to watch how it moves, you can see that it's parked in the driveway, somebody comes out, and then they put a key in and they open the door and all of a sudden you say, aha, this is how the car works. The door opens. Now I understand. And then you watch some other cars, and even though they're all different shape, they all have doors, and the doors all open the same way. Now you start to understand something about functioning. You could say, if I want to block how cars work, the key thing to do is to interfere with doors, not to fill something up in the driver's seat, because driver's seats differ. So what we need is we need a way to take this information that we get from the experiments about what our molecule looks like. Your protein has a certain shape, and we need to say, Yes, but let's follow it in time. Let's see how it acts. Is there something about the function that we can understand that might be a more general target than just trying to fill up space? And that's very difficult to do in experiments because experiments really can't look at one molecule at a time. Some experiments can do that, but then they don't have really good resolution. We need to know where every atom is at every point in time and how it all moves. 
And that's really kind of the next step in drug discovery is to be able to look at it in much more detail than these average pictures we get out from the experiment. So what we do in our simulations is to try to take all the information from the experiment, where the atoms are on average, what the structure looks like, how the chain is folded up, and say, let's look at the time behavior. Let's look at it, and we'll watch it. We'll see how it propagates in time. We'll see how it interacts with other molecules. And we'll also start to understand something about why it looks the way it does. The crystal structures don't tell us anything about why it has this structure instead of a different one, or how strained is this structure? Is the binding really good here, or is the binding really weak, and this is not going to be a good drug? So we need to be able to calculate all this behavior and also calculate whether things are good or bad. Is this a strong interaction, a weak interaction, something like that? And so that's really the general overview of what we're doing. In the case of HIV, there's been a lot of structures that have been solved, probably more than any other protein in history. It's the most widely studied protein because it's a key molecule in the life cycle of the virus. What this protein does is it's like a molecular scissors where the virus in a cell produces new proteins or it gets your cell to produce new proteins, and these proteins assemble up into new viral particles. But they're not infectious. And this HIV protease is a molecule that the virus itself uses to make some key cuts in some of these chains. And after it makes these cuts, it can reassemble itself into a mature virus that's infectious. So if you block the function of this scissors, then you produce immature viral particles that are not infectious and the disease won't progress. For people who are on these drugs, this has really been just a major difference because they live longer, the quality of life is much better. So these HIV protease inhibitors are one of the key drugs that are out on the market now. And so obviously lots of companies want to find good ones. They want to find ones that are different from what other companies have and work better. And so understanding what this molecule looks like and especially what it looks like when the drugs are bound to it is really important. So there's more structures than any other protein, but every time we look at this experimentally, we see one of two shapes. When something is bound to it, it has one form, and when something is not bound to it, it has a different form. And the difference is in these two pieces of the protein chain that look kind of like hairpins, like you might have you know, a little U-shaped hairpin that you use in your hair. And these hairpins cover the active side, so they're very much like doors in the car. You've got the driver's side door and the passenger's door. And if you want to be able to get into the driver's seat or to the place where these scissors are that are going to do the cutting, you need to open one of the doors. So all of the experimental structures we see, the doors are closed. So the question has been, how do things get in and out, right? Is there a hinge like there are in cars? Does the whole thing open up? Maybe instead of opening like a VW Beetle, it opens like you know, a Lamborghini or something like that where it has gull wings. So we need to understand how that happens, but the experiments haven't been able to do it. And so we haven't been able to target the mechanism because we don't know what it is. So in doing our simulations, we were able to follow the shape of this protein as a function of time and watch it and periodically see it open and close and say, yes, now we understand how it works. We're also able to take drugs and put them nearby and say, when this molecule opens up, how do the drugs actually get in to the active site and bind to these scissors and stop them from doing their function? And that's something that experiments hadn't been able to do. Well, one of the things that it sounds like was part of the problem is not only the dynamic simulation, but also the magnitude of the calculations that you really had to do. I believe the number was that I had read in the research for this, you had to do simulation where you're running calculations over the equivalent of a billion time intervals. And even though the structure only remains open for a very tiny amount of time, that's an incredible amount of time from the standpoint of a simulation. Can you talk a little bit about some of the computational issues there? So we want to be able to study 
a protein like HIV protease, and we want to know how do these different drugs interact with it? Which one of these is better? If you're thinking about making a new drug, our goal is to be able to say, this one's going to work against the drug resistant form, and this one won't. So the differences between these different drugs are really in their atomic structure. And the differences between different variants of the HIV virus are in their atomic structure. So if we want to be able to capture the effects of, does this drug work against a resistant virus or not, we need to be able to have atomic details. Just sort of that's the level we need to work at. So if we need all of the atoms there, these calculations get to be very difficult. The way we do the simulation is we calculate all of the forces on the atoms. We have an energy function, and we just do some basic physics, calculate things like electrostatics and bonds and all the different physical interactions. And then we need to be able to take derivatives of those and calculate the forces. Once we know the forces in all the atoms, we can propagate motion in time because force is mass times acceleration. Acceleration is related to the time behavior, and so we can watch where things move in time. Very much like if you said, to stick with the car analogy, if you're driving on the road going south at 30 miles an hour, where you could be in half an hour, you can, in your head, say, I'm going to be 15 miles south. So if you were taking a physics class and had a calculator and I said, well, you're accelerating along the way, then you could do the same calculation. So we can predict in our heads where things are going to be at some future point. You know, baseball players do this where the ball's in the sky, it's moving, they know exactly where they need to be to catch it. And so all we're doing is having the computer take a structure, calculate the forces, and predict at a future point in time where the molecule is going to be. Where should all of the atoms move? And so we can do that. The problem is that we need to stop every now and then and take a look again and see what things have changed around us. If you're in that car driving south at 30 miles an hour, how far can you go? How long can you look away before you get into trouble? This is the problem with people doing things like talking on their cell phones or whatever that you can look away for maybe five seconds, 10 seconds, something like that, before you start to get into trouble because your estimate of where other things will be has changed and you're going to crash. So it's the same thing in a molecule. We can look away for on the order of a femtosecond, which is 10 to the minus 15th seconds. And if we don't look back every femtosecond and check and see where things have moved, we end up having an atomic crash and the system is unstable. So we have to do our time steps and all of these complicated force evaluations every 10 to the minus 15 seconds. NMR experiments, even though they haven't been able to tell us exactly how this opening of HIV protease happens, they're able to tell us that it probably happens on the microsecond time scale, which is 10 to the minus 6. So that means there's at least a 10 to the 9th gap, about a billion times that we have to evaluate our energies and forces before we are even in that biologically relevant time scale. And that's true with a lot of biology, not just HIV protease, but if we want to look at protein folding or lots of different biological events, Biology happens sort of on the microseconds or seconds or longer timescale, and simulations are on this femtosecond timescale. And that's really our major problem right now in doing these atomic simulations, is just how many times can you afford to evaluate this energy function before you actually run out of computer time or run out of researcher time. These simulations take months to do. Well, and also my understanding is that the most extensive simulations that you'd had before we're modeling much shorter time periods, maybe only 50 nanoseconds of behavior, which is unfortunately only 1 20th of the time that this opening happens on the HIV molecule. We know from the experiments that it should be on maybe the tens of microseconds time scale that this opening and closing and the drug binding would happen. And even with the computers that we have now, we really can't afford to do that calculation. So we had to make some approximations and figure out how can we get a good model that will tell us the differences that we need and have the accuracy that we need, but still overcome this problem of time scale. And the way we got around that was by using a multi-scale model. So 
biomolecules function in water. Water is really it's the key solvent for biology. We have to have water there. So we have two ways of including water in our simulations. One of them is to put all of the atomic detailed water in just like we put with the atoms for our protein. We've got oxygens, we have hydrogens, and thousands of water molecules floating around. And we do that for a lot of our work. But it makes things expensive in two ways. One, we have a lot more atoms to keep track of and calculate these forces for. It's a bigger system. And the other is that water causes viscosity. You know that it's much easier to walk in the air than it is to walk through a swimming pool. Water slows down motions. And it does the same thing on the molecular level. So the water will cause this opening and closing to be slower because these flaps, these doors that are around our active site, have to move through the water and they're going to be slowed by it. So what we decided to do was to use a multi-scale model where we kept all of the atomic detail for our protein and then we replaced all the water with a continuum model, which is a mathematical function that includes all of the effects of water, but it doesn't have the atomic detail and it doesn't have the viscosity. We can do that in lots of different ways, and the best ways of doing it are actually slower than including all of the water explicitly. So the only way we can afford to do it in a simulation where we can actually look at how things behave with time is to include simpler models for water, and these really are still under development. It's not clear which things work well and which don't. And so one of the things that we did as part of this project was to evaluate some of these water models and look and see which ones would function for cases like this, which would do what we needed. And we published a few papers comparing the different models and based on our work chose which one we were going to use for this HIV project. Well, you're actually getting into then the next question here that I'm sure that as you were looking at this, you had a number of choices you were considering why did you and your team end up selecting an itanium solution? And then can you tell us a little bit about the final system architecture configuration selected and why you selected that? We do most of our work at the supercomputer centers because we don't really have the resources to be able to have these huge computers locally. It's much better to work at the centers where they have trained staff and so on to take care of the machines. Most of our work is done at NCSA, which is the center at Urbana. And they have a lot of different systems there. We've been working at NCSA for years, and they have choices of different systems. And we had previously used a lot of VM-based architecture there and other systems. And then through doing benchmarking of our software, which is called Amber, that's developed in collaboration with several other research labs, we benchmarked Amber on a lot of different computers. And comparing different processors, the processor that's the fastest for the calculations that we do with Amber is the itanium-2. It's much faster than any of the other processors. The itanium-2 is the best. It's mostly because the processor was designed as a scientific processor. It has very strong floating point behavior, and our calculations are very floating point intensive. The itanium-2 also has a very large cache, and that's important for us because our system sizes can fit in the cache, and that gives us very fast bandwidth between the CPU and our memory for things like our coordinates of our atoms and so on. And so the single processor performance of the itanium-2 is better than any of the other processors we tried. The next step is to say, of the systems with the itanium-2, which one is going to be solving the problem best for you? So we do use multiple processors in all of our calculations. Scientific software has been doing this for years, and now even consumers are finding that they have to do this to get better performance. I know my laptop has a dual-core processor. Lots of people's computers at home now have multiple processors because that's the only way to get things to, to go faster. We've been doing this for a long time. So we know that a single processor is not enough of any kind to be able to solve these scientific problems. So we have to do multiple processors. When we do that, what we do is split up the job so that all of these calculations of the interaction between atoms get done at different processors. We have lots of calculations, lots of work to do, 
And so it can be done in different processors. And then you have to collect all of your forces that have been calculated in different processors together. You know, imagine going to the grocery store and saying, I've got a cart full of groceries. Wouldn't it be nice if you could split it up into two lanes and then just add the subtotals together? And so that's what we do. We do all these calculations in separate processors and add up the subtotals with message passing using NDI. And then the bottleneck starts to be, how long does it take you to sell up those intermediate results to add all of your forces together and to share information about what's happened. And after a while, when we add more processors, those things become the bottleneck and the overhead for the communication takes more time than actually doing the calculation itself. So what's key for us is the interconnect between the processors. How do we share the data? And even with NetGain 2, different systems will do that in different ways, whether it's a cluster-based solution or what we end up using for most of our production calculations, which is the SGIL tips. And the reason we chose the ALT6 is specifically because of this interconnect, that it has a very fast bandwidth. And also key for us is latency for the communication, that we pass lots of messages, and we need to have a very small latency, which is your delay time between the message being passed and received. And on the size of ALTIX that we use, the one at NCSA, which is called Cobalt, I believe is a 1024 processors, the latency there is something on the order of 100 nanoseconds, I believe. And so this is very small. It means that our messages can get passed very quickly. And compared to a cluster, we can use 10 or, in some cases, even 100 times more CPUs on the same simulation job before we start to get diminished returns and don't get any more speed up. And so if we can get a factor of 10 speed up by using something like an Altex instead of a cluster, that's the equivalent of a simulation project that would have taken you a year being down to taking you something like a month. And a key goal in all of our research is to make it so that it fits into the design cycle of experiments and of compounds. So rather than saying a year after the experiment has been done, oh, we could have told you that, we need to be able to work with these experimentalists who come to us and they say, we've got a number of compounds that we'd like to make. It might take us weeks to figure out how to make this. Is it worth doing? And we'll need to be able to get them an answer quick enough where we say, yes, that one looks great. It's going to help go ahead and make it. Or no, don't waste your time. It's not going to be any good. And then we've saved them a lot of experimental research time because we've been able to get them feedback before they've done it. And so that difference between a year to a month to maybe on the order of a week is the difference of whether we can make a contribution or not. So were there any surprises along the way in setting up the computational system? Well, there are always surprises when you're doing research. But more relevant to the case of the HIV project is that we had been doing a lot of simulations on the titanium with water represented explicitly, as I mentioned before. And then we switched over to this continuum model, this mathematical function for water. And even though the Itanium 2 was about twice as fast as other architectures that we tested, when we switched over to the continuum water, it got slower than other architectures. And that was really a surprise to us. We didn't understand why things worked so well when we included the water. And then when we got rid of it, all of a sudden, the system wasn't working well. So we went to SGI, because we were using the Altix at the time, and talked to Roberto Gompertz, who's a scientist at SGI and the support for chemistry and biology applications. And he was able to look through our code and actually point out some things that we'd done that were not very good for the Itanium 2 architecture in terms of our programming and point out some more modern programming techniques to us that we needed to use in some of our loops. So he went through and helped us rebuild some of the key sections of the code. And by doing that, we were able to recover all of our performance on the Itanium 2 and bring it up faster than other processors again. So that made a difference of about a factor of two or three, just having a scientist that was 
trained in the computer architecture and that worked at SGI, but also knew our applications very well. And he's worked with us in the past on Amber and helping us optimize our code for different architectures. So we were able to work on the Atanium 2 with these, these scale models, and we would not have done that if it hadn't been for SGI having these scientists. Now that you've had the solution in place, what new have you learned about HIV, AIDS, and possible therapeutic approaches to combat the disease? I think that one of the things that we've learned is that computers can actually give us an accurate model for not only the structure of the protease in this case and how the drug binds to it, but for the dynamic behavior. And this is something that's been very difficult to include in the drug discovery process. So in the case of HIV, we know that there has to be this structural rearrangement that takes place. And that happens when the drug binds and structure rearranges. Before, we had suspected that from experiment, but it wasn't very clear. And now, based on our simulations, we're pretty sure that that's a real event that happens. One of the things that's surprising about HIV protease is that it's so robust that it can have the same structure and the same behavior even after mutating almost any one of these beads that make up its chain that it's a very robust virus. And one of the things that's interesting is that some of these changes that it undergoes in order to keep the drugs from binding really impair its function where it doesn't behave properly anymore. And so it will have a compensatory mutation where it makes it change somewhere else in the molecule that helps it regain that. For example, one mutation might keep a drug from binding, but it also keeps the flaps from opening. And so the virus can't carry out its function. And so what will happen is another mutation will make the virus much more flexible, and that will compensate for the first mutation that made it rigid. So together, those can both inhibit the drug from binding and keep the flexibility that needs to do its job. And so we need to be able to look at those and compare them to what we see in the clinic and try to understand how these atomic scale motions really are resulting in patients that don't respond to certain treatments. Since many of the people who will be listening to these podcasts are facing major computing challenges in some ways similar to yours, though not necessarily the same problem, do you have any thoughts or guidance you'd like to pass on to them as they work to solve their problems and how they approach their supercomputing challenges? I think one of the important things to keep in mind is that these days you really have to involve people at different levels in your projects. We're doing a project that involves medicine and molecular biology. You have to have people involved that really understand the computer science so you can be on the cutting edge of computing and understand how to do multiprocessor computing and modern programming methods and algorithms and things like that. It's very difficult to know all of the chemistry, all of the physics, and all of the computer science. You really have to build a team of people that has these different skills. But it's also important from my point of view that you don't get bogged down in the computer science and the efficiency and let that be your goal. In the end, solving the problem is the goal. Solving the medical problem, understanding what happens to the chemistry here is my goal. And I want to make things efficient and I want to do the program properly, but that's not the end. And I think that it's very easy to say we need to get parallel efficiency and we need to do this, but if it doesn't actually reduce the wall clock time to solution and make it so that you can contribute to medicine, then it doesn't matter how elegant a computer science solution is. So you really need to focus on what's efficient as long as it helps you reach the goal and make efficiency not the goal itself. And if someone out there wanted to learn more about your team's research, perhaps contact you for more information on it or even further support your important research, where should they reach you? You can reach me by email. It's always the best way to reach people like me. And my email address is carlos.simmerling at stonybrook.edu. You can easily find me through my name, Simmerling, on a web search. You can also find more information about our software that's developed by the team of people that make the Amber software at amber.scripts.
edu, and that shows what kinds of things our software can do and how to obtain the software in some case studies and things like that. And last but not least, what do you plan to do with the $50,000 you won? That's a good question. I haven't decided yet. I think that the most important thing to me being a scientist is education, that it's my education that my parents invested in that put me here. And I have two children, and so I think the majority of the money is going to be going towards their education so that they can end up having the opportunities that I've had. Well, Carlos, I really appreciate the time today and talking about this. You're working on something that is one of the most important things on the planet right now, so we appreciate the work that you and your team have done, your time today in explaining it, and thanks again for taking the time with us today to talk about it. Thank you. Of course, as a scientist, you know, you always want to talk about your own work because we're driven to do it from our curiosity, not because we want to have a job. And so anytime you have a captive audience that you can tell about these exciting things that make you curious, that's always fun. Thanks again for joining us for today's interview. If you'd like more information on the podcast you just heard, as well as others in this series, please visit us at www.itaniumsolutionsalliance.org.